We're beginning a brand new series today. Before we jump into it, let me say this is my favorite time of year as a church. I want to steal the song from Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year because today we begin our 21-day season of prayer and fasting. I know some of you think I'm crazy for loving this season of fasting where you don't eat for 21 days, but... Honestly, when you feel the spiritual impact in your life of this discipline, this is something like you don't want to not do every year because it just sets the year on course the right way. And so I want to invite you, if you're part of our church family, to participate with us. Again, 21 days of prayer and fasting. Tomorrow morning, Monday to Friday, this room is going to be filled with people from 6.30 a.m. to 7.30 a.m. The best way to start your day, just seeking God praying. For those of you that have never been to a prayer meeting before, I want to invite you to come because I know a lot of people, if you've never been to a prayer meeting, you've got a lot of ideas of what you think it might be like, and a lot of them are so far from reality and the truth. So I want to give you permission to come and not participate at all. You can just sit in the back of the building and observe and watch until you feel comfortable to engage. And what you're going to discover is it's not weird at all. It's not, not at all what you're probably thinking it may look. Uh, most Our prayer meetings, the majority of it is the lights are low, the music is loud, and the room is filled with people who are just praying on their own, meeting with God on their own, sitting all over the room. And you can just come and be a part of it. There's just a great, a great foundation to build as you're going. We're also going to live stream our prayer meeting. So if you physically can't be here because maybe you have young kids at home or another reason, you can join us at 630. We're going to get a link up on our website, uh, either Facebook Live or something where you can join in and pray with us from home. I encourage you to get a prayer guide. We have these available. They, uh, I was just told that almost all of them were taken during the last service, so we're getting more printed this week, but there are still a few left. This is a great resource. I've discovered that a lot of people would pray if they knew how. This helps you understand how to pray. For those of you on the one-year Bible plan with us, today we read Matthew chapter 6, which is the Lord's Prayer. The thing about the Lord's Prayer that you need to know is it's not something you're supposed to memorize and recite like a parrot. You know, there are a lot of people who think that you're supposed to memorize the Lord's Prayer and recite it back to God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. A parrot can do that. That's not prayer. Prayer is very, very different. When you study what Jesus was doing is he was giving you an outline for prayer. The Lord's Prayer is seven points of prayer that if you elaborate each of those points of prayer, you have one of the most meaningful times of prayer you've ever had. We teach you how to do that with this book. These are free. They're available to everyone. They'll be available at our 21 Days of Prayer as well as at the Info Center today. When it comes to fasting, a lot of people understand the concept of prayer. They don't understand fasting. So I would encourage you to go to our website or our YouTube page, and watch the message from last weekend. I taught on fasting last weekend, the technical, the practical aspects of how we fast, different types of fasting, as well as on our website. We have a lot of resources available for you on fasting, preparing. And I would encourage you, if you're part of our church family, to fast in some way over the 21 days. There are different types of fasting. And again, all the information is on our website or the message from last weekend. Spiritually, it's one of the greatest things you can do to connect with God. You'll find a level of Christianity you didn't think existed. Like you, 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 you've, 
for, for a lot of people, Christianity has never moved beyond a religion. Like it's just, you know, we do this because we're supposed to do this, but you've never really felt connected to God in a very real, alive way. Fasting is one of the quickest ways to feel the reality of Christianity. Like it's not a dead religion. Like spiritually, you come alive and you're like, I didn't know that was possible. Like I thought we were just here to study a, a religion or history or things that happened a long time ago and figure out how to live a better life. No, when, when you begin to fast, as the Bible teaches, it connects you to God in a very, very powerful way. So I encourage you to do that. As we're setting you up for the new year, one of the other things we do as a church family is we have a reading plan called the One Year Bible. If you do not have a Bible reading plan, now if you're part of our church family, I want to encourage you to read the Bible every day, every day, every day. The Bible is nourishment for our spirit and our soul. If you only ate food once a week, you would be malnourished. There are a lot of people who are spiritually malnourished. So we have a reading plan that is very, very simple for you to join in on if you don't already have your own. This is the one-year Bible plan. You will read the entire Bible in one year, and it takes the average reader about 15 minutes a day to read the entire Bible. You get a Psalm, you get a Proverb, you get some Old Testament, you get some New Testament. It's without a doubt my favorite plan and, and one of the great things that happens is when we as a church family are all reading the same plan, when you go to small group or you're serving on your dream team, uh, more often than not, there are people serving with you or at your small group who read the same passages of scripture that you read that day. And it really, it helps because when you read something you don't understand, you can talk about it with your dream team or your small group, or you, you read something that really inspires you, you can talk about it, and very likely they've read the same stuff that you've read, so you can connect in all reading through the same plan together. And let me just point out one thing about this plan. It's, it's 365 days for one year. If you miss a day, don't try to catch up. Like today is day seven. Don't you know, try to read day one through six before you start today. Because here's what happens when you try to catch up. You typically give up and you stop reading. Just read each day. Like if it's day eight, read day eight. If it's day 15, read day 15. Don't Try to catch up because next year you'll, because you, next, if you miss day six, next year, 2019, there'll be another day six and it'll be the same plan. So you can catch up next year because we do this every year. We, I believe it's important as a believer to read the Bible once a year. Let's just read through the Bible once a year. And if I miss a day, I miss a day. I'll pick it up next year and the year after and the year after because it's the same plan year after year. And that's the beauty of it. So don't try to catch up. Just read each day for what it is. Lastly, before we get into the message, our winter retreat for all of our high school, middle school students is coming up. Middle school is about a month away. High school is about six weeks away. And so if you have high school or middle school students, tonight at Freestyle, we'll be talking more about this and giving them information. The link is online and available now through our website. So you can register your kids and sign up. And there's powerful things that happen at these retreats and these camps. Uh, most Christians today say some of the most defining moments of their faith happen at a youth camp or a youth retreat. And I don't know what it, what it is about the mountains. When you take students to the mountains, they just connect with God. I don't know if it's the elevation, you're just like physically closer to God because you're up real high in the mountains or, or what it is. But there's something about it that really helps you connect to God in a powerful way. So consider joining us. It's going to be a great time. We're beginning a brand new series today called The Daniel Dilemma, which comes from a book that my pastor wrote last fall called The Daniel Dilemma. Pastor Chris Hodges 
Very powerful book. As I began to read this book, something exploded inside of me, and I realized this book is, is a manual. It's a playbook. It's a study of the book of Daniel, but it really is a playbook for how you and I are to live in the world that we live in today. How do we face and navigate the culture that we're in the middle of? Like, how can we stand for what we believe without making people feel judged or condemned? How can we show grace and not compromise our values at the very same time? And so what I want to encourage you to do is I've got about four to five weeks to touch on the material that from the book and things that God has put on my heart from the book. But I want to encourage you to go deeper, like, like get a copy of this book. We have a link on our website where you can order a copy of this book from Amazon, either get it on your Kindle or get a hard copy and keep a copy with you and really use it as a playbook, as a manual for the culture that we're in the middle of, the world that we live in, because it'll help. It'll help tremendously navigating some of the issues that we've got to navigate, because here's the truth. I'm 42 years old. In my lifetime alone, I've seen three to four major shifts in culture just in my lifetime. Culture is shifting. Like things are happening. We saw a major shift in culture on New Year's Eve. I don't know if you understand how significant this was, but there was a major shift in culture on New Year's Eve when we had a primetime major news network allow one of their reporters, one of their anchors, on air to do a drug that our federal government declares illegal. Now, I don't know if you understand what a big deal that was, but that shifted our culture. We're going to feel the effects of that for years to come. Something changed that night because of what took place. It was a shift in culture. So we need to figure out how do we navigate this? How do we live in the world today, because there is this tension. And what the book of Daniel shows us when you study it is not only can you endure the culture you live in, but you can influence it. You can make a difference in the world that you live in. Daniel is a storybook. It's history. There are stories that took place. Many of us know the stories from Sunday school, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, or we learn the stories from Veggie Tales or other, you know, kids' cartoons out there. Uh, let, let me help you understand the Bible as I, as I kind of show you where Daniel fits into the Bible. The Bible, for some, it's confusing because it's not written chronologically, and that's going to help some of you a lot because you've read through the Bible. You, like, you start on page one. You kind of go through the Bible. You read about King David. He, he lives, and he fights a giant, and then he dies, and then two books later, he's living again, and he's going through the whole story again. And then, a couple, and then he dies, and then a couple of books later, he's writing Psalms. And you're like, how is that possible? Like, I thought he died two books ago. It's not written chronologically. The way the Bible is put together, it's put together in groups of books. So there's sections to the Bible. The first section of the Old Testament is what we call the law. It's, it's God's standard and law. Then you got the history section, what happened to the nation of Israel. Then there's a poetry section, Psalm and Proverbs. It's literature. And then the, the final section of the Old Testament is what we call the prophetic section of the Old Testament. The, the major prophets and the minor prophets, major not meaning they're more important, just longer in length in the minor prophets. Well, Daniel is found, even though it's history, it's found in the minor prophets of the Old Testament. It's part of the prophecy books because the first six chapters of Daniel is history. The second six chapters of Daniel is prophecy. 
Now, chronologically speaking, Daniel would have been one of the very last books of the Old Testament. You have the Old Testament, then there's 400 years of silence before the New Testament was written. Daniel would have been one of the last books. Now, I personally believe one of the reasons the book of Daniel is in the prophecy section of our Bible is because it's not just history. God wants us to understand that this history is actually prophecy. This is a playbook for how to live our life in the culture that we live in. It's not just historical records of things that happen, but it's a roadmap for how we are to live our life, prophetically speaking to us, thousands of years in the future of how to live in the world that we live in today. It shows us, Daniel shows us what happens when a generation rejects God. It shows us the consequence and the price that they pay when they turn their back on God. And I want to say America is at that deciding point right now. Like we're, we're, we're in a decision season as a nation. Are we going to be one nation under God? Or are we going to go a different direction and be our own God? And Daniel shows us the consequence. For them in their time period, they were overthrown by a foreign empire and everybody was taken into captivity and slaves. You had, if you study the history of Israel, Israel was made up of 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob, each came one of the tribes of Israel. The 10 northern tribes became their own nation. They, they've separated from the southern tribes and they became the nation of Israel. And then the two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, became the nation of Judah. Well, years before the book of Daniel, the northern tribes, Israel, turned their back on God. They rejected God, and the Assyrians came in and destroyed the nation, took the people captives, destroyed all of the cities. The southern tribes, the nation of Judah, did not learn anything from their northern neighbors. And now they're at this point where they've rejected God. They've gone their own way. They've begun to serve false gods and idols. And now Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, is invading Israel and destroying everything and taking the people captive. And that's where we pick up in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to go through the book of Daniel during this series and really understand how do we live in the world that we live in. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's that military term for overthrowing a city, destroying a city. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. So now they're, they're not only destroying the city, but they're taking the articles used to worship God. And they're carrying them off to their temple to serve their God in Babylonia and put in the treasury house of their God. And this is what I feel like is happening in America today. Not only are they they're going after the culture of America, but they're trying to change the church. They're trying to change what we believe and how we worship and who we are in the house of God. It says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, and we're going to look at this character a lot throughout this story. He was the chief of his court officials to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So they took these, the, the, basically the wealthy, the royal, the noble, they didn't want them to be ordinary slaves in Babylon. They thought that they could do much, much more working in the palace. And so these were the slaves that were brought in and said, listen, you're smart. You've been educated. You've been trained. We don't want you out in the fields doing grunt work. We're going to bring you into the palace to serve the king. 
It says they were young men without any physical defect, handsome. Kind of reminds you of our worship pastor, Tim. That's kind of the, the picture it's painting here. <laughs> Showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. In other words, they were going to indoctrinate them into this pagan, immoral, very, when you study it, very evil, wicked culture, taking them away from their customs and indoctrinating them into a new custom. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, to which you're thinking, well, that's, you know, that, that's better than what most of the slaves are getting. This wasn't a good thing for these Hebrew kids. This went against every dietary restriction they had. This was food, meat that was sacrificed, offered to idols, offered to false gods. This would have been detestable for them. Basically, culture was trying to shove down their throat a new way of living, a new way of believing, a new way of, of, of everything about everything they, they grew up believing and grew up adhering to was being stripped away, and now culture was shoving down a new belief system onto them. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. And here's the characters that we've heard so much about in Sunday school. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So here's the point. If we don't understand the times that we live in, if we don't recognize what culture is doing, and we don't look at the book of Daniel as a playbook, as, as prophecy to the way we are to live our life today, culture will end up having the same effect on us, and we won't even notice it happening. Here's the point. Culture has an agenda. Whether you recognize it or not, culture has an agenda. You watch television today. You watch movies today. You look at the education system here in America. There is an agenda happening. They are trying to shift what we believe, change what we think, look at things differently, accept things as normal that are, are, are violate our conscience, compromise our standards. There is an agenda. And I want you to see the agenda in this story because it's the same agenda happening today. Here's the first thing in verse 7. The chief official gave them new names. See, the first thing culture is trying to do is rename you. Trying to take away everything they knew, take away their custom. See, they didn't just want to destroy the nation of Israel and destroy all of its city. They wanted to obliterate all of the customs, all of the culture where that civilization never existed. And so not only were they destroying physical buildings, but they were destroying their culture and their identity and who they were, giving them new names. This is basically, it was a tactic of when a foreign empire overthrew another nation, they would give them slave names, robbing them of their culture, robbing them of their customs. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. You see, a name is a sign of ownership. You're living according to a name today. You're, you're living either a name that was given to you or a name that was put on you. There is something that you believe about yourself that is determining how you live your life. And the question is, are you believing what culture has said about you or are you believing what God has said about you? 
Because here's the first agenda of culture. Culture wants to change our identity. Change who we are. Change what we believe. Change our standards. For years of my life, I lived by a name that wasn't mine. You see, right after my father left, right before my middle school years of education, my father left our family. I went to a new school, new city, new town, and for whatever reason, I became a target of some of the bullies in the school. And for about a year, I got bullied pretty severely. And I remember the, the, the kind of the capstone of it all was one day after school when a group of kids took me and threw, and it's, it's funny now, it wasn't funny then, it was actually very painful then, threw me into a dumpster. And I remember it ruined all my clothes, ruined my shoes. I had to walk home humiliated that day. And I remember that day I said to myself, that'll never happen to me again. I will do whatever it takes. I will, I, I will become whatever I have to become for that never to happen to me again. And because of that pain, I assumed an identity that was not God's identity for my life. I, I, I knew I couldn't connect with the cool kids or the popular kids, so I, I went to the drug crowd at my school. I became one of the stoners and said, I'll hang with them because I'll do whatever it takes for this to never happen to me again. And I assumed an identity that was not God's identity for my life. So you need to know the devil is trying to get you to live by his script for your life. And the major way he does this is by changing your identity. This is one of the reasons why I love our church, because the whole goal of this church is to take you on a spiritual journey where you can grab hold of the name that God has always had for you. Before you were born, God had a plan, purpose, and identity for your life. Just ask anybody that's gone through the growth track that's really discovered why God has put them on earth, and they'll tell you this is true. Look at the story. Look at the names. You see, in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, names mattered. Names signified who people were. Like, we were very intentional with naming our boys. Like, our, our newborn baby, we call him Judah Arrow. The reason we named him that was because while my wife was pregnant, we, we got a prophecy that he would lead worship one day, and he would be a musical baby one day, and a musical child. So we gave him the name Judah, which means praise to God. Because we know that's part of his destiny. And then Arrow was named after me. We just took off the letter N because my wife wouldn't let me name him after me because he was the second born. So the closest I could get was give him half of my name without the letter N. So we'll just tell him one day he just wasn't good enough to get the letter N. <laughs> Maybe he works real hard. We'll, we'll give him the letter N one day, but right now he's just Arrow. Uh, and then my son Asher, he was named, and Asher means blessed or happy, and we did that intentionally because we wanted blessing on his life. We wanted to just prophesy blessing every time I say his name, and I've taught him this growing up. Every time I say your name, I'm calling you blessed, and I want you to know that is who you are. You are blessed of God, and he is one of the happiest kids I've ever been around and one of the most blessed kids I've ever been around. Names matter. Look at the story. Daniel the name Daniel means God is my judge. Like I, I, I submit to God and God alone. God is the authority of my life. God is my ruler. God is who I serve. They renamed Daniel Belteshazzar, which means lady, protect the king. <laughs> you see the gender confusion there? <coughs> trying to, trying to, steal his identity. This is not who you are. This is who you are. 
This is what you need to believe, even gender confusion. You don't serve God. You don't report to God. You serve man. God's not your ruler. We see this happening in culture today, trying to confuse our identity. Even, even gender identity being confused today. Hananiah, Yahweh has been gracious. My God has been so good to me. That's what that means. No, God's not good. Shadrach, I'm fearful of God. God's bad. God's mean. You need to be afraid of God. And this is what culture wants you to believe of God. Culture doesn't want you to believe God is good. Culture wants you to believe that God is mean. God is hard. You can't please God. You need to be afraid of God. Mishael means who is what God is. Feel the confidence in that statement. There's nobody like my God. Who is like God? No, God's not great. Don't be confident in God. Be Meshach. I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. Where's your God now? This is who you are now. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. My God has helped. God has helped. God has been there for me. No, you're a Bendigo servant of Nebo. You're not, God, God, God's not helping. You're serving a false God now. Nebo, an idol, a false God. What's the point? When culture shifts, we got to know who we are. This is why the one-year Bible to me is so critical. You need to be daily getting God's word about who you are. Read it daily. Remind yourself daily what God says about you because culture is shifting. And you're not who the world says you are. You are who God says you are. Look at the next thing in the story, verse 8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He, he said, I got some standards. I'm not going to compromise who I am. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. I love how respectful Daniel was about this. So respectful in his approach. But here's what culture's doing. Culture's gonna ask us to compromise our standards. Compromise what we believe. Compromise right and wrong. Culture is putting so much pressure on us right now that we keep moving the plumb line of what is right and what is wrong. And, and I see this happening amongst Christians continually. You look at some of the video games that Christians play today, some of the television shows that Christians watch today, some of the music Christians listen to. And, and let me be absolutely clear. It's not my job to tell you what you can and can't do. Don't come to me afterwards and ask me, can I listen to this? Can I watch it? It's, it's not my, that's the Holy Spirit. Here's the point, though. I look at some of the stuff that we're allowing into our mind, and when asked about it, here's what people say. Well, it doesn't bother me. That's my point. It doesn't bother you anymore. Culture has shifted you so much that things that were clear now don't bother you anymore. Like that doesn't, doesn't bother me. That's what culture is doing to us. And I want you to realize that God's standard and God's law, the Bible, is for you, not against you. God did not sit in heaven thinking to himself, I want to write a book to make their life as difficult as I could possibly make it. That, that's not the point of the Bible. Like God's standard in his word is to bless you, to, pro to give you the most fulfilled life imaginable. So here's the point. When culture shifts, we've got to reaffirm our convictions. We've got to know what we believe. We've got to know who we are. 
And in a couple of weeks, we're going to do a whole message on this where we're going, to, we're going to reaffirm who we are, what we believe, our values. And regardless of what culture says, we're going to take a stand and say, I will not be moved. And then here's the last thing we see in chapter 1, verse 9. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy toward Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. This is where we get the Daniel fast. What I want to point out is this is the first of many tests throughout the book of Daniel. What's amazing to me is how many times their faith was tested throughout this book. All to say if this is prophecy, which it is in the prophetic section, we've got to get ready because there are tests coming our way. The world that we live in is going to test our faith. The culture that we live in is going to test our faith. Daniel said, test us, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Here's the third thing culture is trying to do. Culture is trying to create a confrontation. Culture wants to put you in the middle of a confrontation and you've got to be prepared for this. You've got to be ready because your faith is going to be tested. This Friday, I went up to the mountain snowboarding with my son. One of our trustees brought his son. And we were driving home from the mountain, and, he, and we were just talking. He's a businessman in our church. And he told me, he said, I'm already getting prepared for the day that I lose business for being on the board of this church. I said, what do you mean? He said, there's going to come a day when, when I do these business deals, they do due diligence and, and they research who I am to see who they're getting in business with. They're going to see that I sit on this board and they're going to look at the beliefs and the values of this church and they're going to decide because of you know, our position on marriage or our position on this that they just decide they don't want to do business with me. He said, I'm already getting prepared for that time. When I lose business because of what I believe, I lose business because of what I stand for. And he said, the good thing is I've already resolved in my mind what I'm going to do. So there's no decision that I need to make that day because I've already decided. Can I tell you, culture is going to create a confrontation for you. The world we live in is going to put you in a place where you will be tested. So here's the thought. When culture shifts, we've got to respond the right way we got to know what we're going to do when this comes. And this is the focus of the message in the series. This is the big why behind why we're, why we're starting the year this way. Because what I'm seeing is most of the church, most Christians are not responding the right way. The truth is very few people are responding the right way. What I see out there is there's two extremes. There's two, two extreme responses. One response is very, very dogmatic. It's I'm right, and you're wrong, and you're going to hell, and I don't even care. And technically, you may be right, but it's just not helpful. 
And the point is, God's not asked you to be right. God's asked you to be effective. There's a big difference between being right and being effective. And then you have another extreme in Christianity today that says, well, just let everyone in the way they are. God just loves everyone, and they don't need to change. And if that's who God made them to be, you just got to let, let them be whoever God made them to be because God loves everyone. Here's the problem. In the name of love, in the name of love, we have a generation of Christians that are setting aside the Bible and actually think that they love people more than God loves people. Think that I know better than God and I love people more than God. Bible needs to be changed. It needs to be updated. It needs to be amended. It's not socially acceptable anymore. You can't move God's truth around that way. So what do we do? How do we live? How do we navigate the tension of the world that we live in? Well, what we need is what I, what I call, and it's the title of the message, a grace and truth Christianity. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We need God's grace. We need God's truth. And this is exactly what Daniel did. Daniel stayed firm in his faith and influenced an entire generation at the very same time. This is what Jesus modeled for us. Jesus never once compromised what he believed or who he was, and at the very same time, never once made anybody feel condemned. This is what we are called to live. There's a verse that shows us in John, the word became flesh. That was the story of Christmas. We just celebrated. Jesus came down and he became human and he made his dwelling among us for 33 years. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And here's one of the most powerful statements in the body, in the Bible. He was full of grace and truth. Jesus wasn't 50% grace and 50% truth. He was 100% grace and 100% truth 100% of the time. Full of grace, full of truth. So here's the question, what is truth? What is truth? Well, truth is God's standard. Truth is the standard that I am to live my life by. Truth is what God expects out of me. Well, what is God's standard? How do I find God's standard? Well, it's his word. John says, sanctify them by the truth your word is truth. So God's word is the standard that we live by. So let me say it like this. We love every single person in North County. Every single person in this community is welcome in our church. I don't care who they are. I don't care what they've done. I don't care where they've been. They are welcome in our church. But we also believe at the same time that God's word is true, and it does not change. I had a guy come to me after one of these services a couple years ago, walked up to me right at the end of the service, and this was his opening line to me. He says, I'm gay. Will I be accepted here? And I looked at the guy, and I said, can I be honest with you? That's not what you're asking me. That's not what you're asking me. I said, let me, let me be very honest. I don't know any church in America apart from some religious whack jobs out there that wouldn't accept you. Every church I've ever been a part of would accept you. Like, yes, you are accepted and you are loved and you are welcome to be a part of this church family. We're not gonna treat you any different than anyone else. I said, but that's not what you're asking me. You, here's, here's what you're asking me. You're asking me if I'll change what I believe so that you would feel accepted. 
That, that's your definition of being accepted. I said, so the real question is not whether or not we'll accept you. The real question is whether or not you'll accept us. Because you're welcome and you're loved. But I'm not going to change what I believe if that's your definition of acceptance. I can love you and accept you at the same time. And that is God's truth. Culture changes, God doesn't. But here's the thing, we can't stay with truth alone. We also need God's grace. What is God's grace? God's grace is God's favor. God shows us favor even when we're not favorable. The Bible says he died for us even while we were still spitting on him. He loves you just the way you are. And this is why God's grace is why he refuses to allow anything good you have ever done to qualify you to go to heaven. Nothing good you've ever done qualifies you to go to heaven. The Bible's clear, Ephesians 2, God saved you by his grace. When you believed, and you can't take credit for this, it is a gift from God. It's not your performance. It's not your effort. It's not, it's not anything you've ever done. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So it's not about being a good person. So none of us can boast about it. So let me help you understand the two. Without truth, we're corrupt. Man, without truth, I will mess my life up. Because God has a plan for my life. He has a standard for me to live by that is very, very different than the standard that the world wants me to live by. Very, very different than the standard that even my own sin nature wants me to live by. So without God's truth, I am all messed up. I need God's truth or I'm corrupt. But at the same time, without grace, we're condemned. Because the truth is none of us can live up to God's standard. None of us can do it perfectly. We need grace or we're condemned. You cannot do enough good in your own effort to get saved. Unfortunately, there are people out there who believe in what we call a 51% gospel. Have you ever heard of a 51% gospel? A lot of people believe in a 51% gospel. You hear it a lot at funerals. For whatever reason, oftentimes you go to a funeral, you hear the preacher make this statement. It's the 51% gospel. Well, he was a good man. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means, you know, he did some bad things in his life, but he did enough good things to outweigh the bad things, so he did enough good to get in. It's what we call the 51% gospel. In other words, if Hitler is zero and Jesus is 100, where do you have to be to tip the scale? Like, again, Hitler zero, Jesus 100. If you get to 51, do you get to heaven? Or maybe is it 75? Like, like where, do you have to, where do you have to land to tip the scale to get to heaven? What the Bible says is it's 100. You got to hit 100. Well, that's impossible. Nobody can do that. Exactly. That's my point. None of us can do it. That's why we need God's grace, because we can't do it without grace. Without truth, we become worldly. Without truth, we begin to live like the world, look like the world, act like the world. I need God's truth for my attitude. I need God's truth for how I treat my wife and how I treat my kids. I need a standard to live by. We all have problems that we need God's truth to help us out of. But at the same time, without grace, we become judgmental. We can become mean. We become ugly. We say things like, yeah, I'm bad, but at least I'm not as bad as them. Like, I, I've, I've made some mistakes, but I've never done that. We become judgmental. You see, truth without grace is mean. It's ugly. It's religion. 
But at the same time, grace without truth is meaningless. There's no such thing as grace if there's no truth. Grace has to be there because of truth. You need both, but when you put them together, truth and grace, it equals good medicine. And this is what I'm asking the followers of Christ, the believers who are part of our church family to live by. This is what I also want to offer you if you need it. You see, when we came to North County, we didn't come to North County to build another church. We didn't need another church in this community, to be honest. We came to create a place, and we're not the other only one because there's some great churches doing this. We came to create a place where people could find both grace and truth. We didn't have to be one or the other. You see, grace invites us to be free. Grace says you can find freedom. Grace says, I know what you did last night, and you're still welcome. I know who you are, and you're still loved. But it's truth that sets us free. Truth says, I got something better for you. So we do not change God's word. We let God's word change us. So let me end with, to me, the most beautiful story in the Bible. It's a story of Jesus illustrating this concept better than anything else. John chapter 8, it says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees, the religious people, the religion, brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, which is funny to me, because I always wonder, what were they doing there in the first place? Like, if they caught her in the act, why were they there? Isn't it amazing how we're so good at everyone else's sin? They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. She needs to die. We need to kill her. What do you say? What do you say? And that's the tension right there. That's the question that you're being asked right now. You have people at work asking you that question. What do you say about this? What do you say about that? What do you think about this? You have people at school asking you, what do you say about this? You have neighbors asking you, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say about right and wrong? What do you say about what the Supreme Court decides? What do you say about what California legalizes? What do you say about it? Trying to trap you. See, they were trying to trap him. They're trying to trap Jesus. They were giving him an either or. Either you go with truth and you kill her, or you go with grace and you break the law of Moses. But here's the point of the message. It's not an either and or, it's a both and. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Wouldn't you love to have known what he was writing? We don't have a record. I can't wait to get to heaven and ask him. They kept demanding an answer, so he stooped, stood up again and said, all right, and he made one of the most famous statements of the Bible. We'll kill her. You want to kill her? Let's kill her. Let's stone her to death right now. She deserves to die. She's a sinner. It's horrible. Let's kill her. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Yeah, let's kill her. But we're going to start this by whoever has never sinned, never made a mistake, never done anything wrong, you get to throw the first rock. 
Do you realize there was only one person there who qualified to throw a stone? The only one standing there without sin was Jesus. Some of you need to reshape the way you think about God with this story. Because you think God is mean, and you think God is this cosmic bully in the sky waiting to catch you doing something wrong. Look at this story. Jesus was the only one qualified to stone her that day. He was the only one without sin. Only one that could have thrown a rock. Then he stooped down again, and he rode in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. Again, I would love to know what Jesus was writing. Many theologians have pondered this. Many pastors have pondered it. I heard of one pastor say that they, he thinks Jesus was writing a list of their sins, like all the sins they committed. My pastor, he says that Jesus was writing the names of their mistresses. Like, Sally. Martha. And just like, they just began to disappear, yeah. Until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Can I say something about how incredible Jesus is? When he confronts your past, when he deals with your sin, he does it in the most respectful, non-humiliating way. He waited till he was all alone with her. He didn't bring it up in front of the accusers. He was so respectful to this woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, one of the most powerful statements in the Bible, neither do I. Grace. I'm not gonna condemn you. I'm not gonna judge you. I didn't come to judge you. I didn't come to condemn you. I'm not gonna beat you up over your past. That's not my place. It's not why I'm here. I don't condemn you, but he doesn't stop there. He also gives her truth. Now go and sin no more. This isn't the best life for you. I have something so much better for your life. This hurts you. Every time you sin, there's consequences, and I love you, and I don't like to see you in pain. I don't like to see you in consequences. So I don't want you to live this way anymore. Look, I'm not gonna condemn you. I'm not gonna judge you. I'm not gonna rub your nose in it. I'll never hold your past against you, but at the same time, let's don't live this way anymore. I've got something better for you. I've got something you're gonna enjoy so much more. Grace and truth. He gave her both that day, grace and truth. He modeled it for us. Again, he's saying, look, I know what you did last week, but I still love you, but let's not do it anymore. Let me help you out of that life. I've got something better for you. So what I'm calling our church to as we start this year is we're going to hold high God's truth. We're not going to compromise who we are. We're not going to compromise our standards, our beliefs, our values. We're going to hold God's truth high. But at the very same time, we're going to freely give God's grace. We're not going to judge anybody. We're not going to condemn anyone. We're going to love, welcome everyone. We're going to accept every single person. We don't accept sin. We accept people. There's a big difference. And here's the thing about sin. God hates sin, not people. God doesn't hate sinners. He hates sin. The reason he hates sin is because sin hurts the people he loves. Because whether you like it or not, every time you sin, there's a consequence attached to it. God doesn't punish you for sinning. Sin punishes you for sinning. Sin in and of itself is its own punishment. 
And you know that to be true because every time you sin, you feel it. There's consequences. And God loves you so much, he doesn't like to see you hurting. He doesn't like you to see you suffering the consequences. So he says, I got something better. I hate what sin is doing to you. I hate sin because it's hurting you, but I love you. And I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to hold your past against you. But I've got something so much better for you. If you'll follow my truth, if you'll follow my standard, and that's the power of the gospel. It's the power of who Jesus is. Would you close your eyes with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I pray that our church would embrace the book of Daniel as our playbook, as our manual for how we navigate the world that we live in, how we handle the shift of culture. We feel it shifting. We see it shifting. And God, that we would take an approach that is full of grace and full of truth. And I know it's the hard approach. It's so much easier to be all on the side of grace or all on the side of truth. It's so much easier. But we want to follow Jesus. We want to follow the model of Daniel. Where we don't compromise who we are, but we influence the world that we live in for you. Because we walk with the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. Let that resemble who we are as a church. Let it resemble our lives at work and our communities. Give us the strength for the test that we're going to face. Prepare us. And as Daniel went through the lion's den without a mark on his body. And as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through a fiery furnace without even the smell of smoke on their clothes. We know, Lord, that you can take us through every test that comes our way. The test may be scary, may be difficult. But if we stand firm with you, you can bring us through every test we'll ever face in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me? The worship team is going to lead us in one final song as we close. As always, the prayer team will be available. If there's anything going on in your life you need someone to stand and pray with you for, I encourage you to come down. If you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus, you need to become a Christian. You need to receive that, that grace. You need to hear Jesus says, look, I'm not going to condemn you. I've got something so much better for you. Come down and pray with somebody on our team. They'd love to pray with you today. They'll share with you how to give your life to Jesus. And then let me remind you, tomorrow morning, 6.30 a.m., we're going to be in this room praying. If you can't physically be here, set your alarm, join us online. Let's, let's pray as a church this 21 days. Let's worship together.